And welcome back to The Damn Podcast. I'm your host, Carter Baines, and it's a solo endeavor this week as my co-host, Angie Machado, BeaverBlitz.com publisher, is taking a much-deserved vacation overseas in Europe. So Angie, as we speak, is in Italy. Uh, She spent some time in France and unfortunately is not able with the time zones to uh, to join us this week, but the show must go on, I said. Uh, we're going to do a, a little bit different type of show today and, and this week as we wait for Angie to get back, but, um, you know, it's, it's a, like I said, a much-deserved vacation for Angie. We miss her at Beaver Blitz, but um, she'll be better for it. She'll be recharged and, and ready to go next week when we hopefully get back to our regularly scheduled programming here on the damn podcast. But in the time being, we're going to go with a mailbag episode today. I tweeted out and, and posted in the lodge at beaverblitz.com uh, some threads to, to post some questions if Oregon State fans had any and got quite the response. So uh, it's going to be a full show today of, of just questions one after another. And uh, hopefully we can we can cover all the bases here from football to men's basketball to baseball, uh, NIL, the transfer portal, you name it. Uh, we're going to try to cover it today. So that's kind of the uh, that's the overview. We're going to start with some Twitter questions, and then we'll end the show with the questions from the members at beaverblitz.com from the lodge. This is also an audio only episode, so uh, you know we've we've been doing our damn podcast live simulcast on YouTube, but we wanted to thank our loyal podcast listeners who have been with us for years uh, with an audio exclusive. So once Angie gets back to the U.S., we'll get back to our our live video as well on YouTube, but this week it's it's just you and me on Spotify or SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts, uh, wherever you get your, your podcasts, we try to be available there. I just got back from Eugene a couple of days ago on, on Tuesday as Oregon State hit the baseball diamond for the second time in two weeks at PK Park. Beavers came away with a sweep, taking care of business in non-conference play against Oregon, uh, they win the second meeting at PK, 2-0 in a shutout, the first shutout that Oregon has suffered since 2019 and the first of the Mark Wasikowski era. So uh, no easy feat by Oregon State on the diamond. Uh, it sets up for a really intriguing series this weekend in Corvallis as they play for um, for, for Pac-12 supremacy, potentially. I would not be surprised if the winner of this series uh, ends up in first in, in the Pac-12. Obviously, there are some other series, UCLA, Stanford, Arizona, that will determine who leaves this weekend at number one. But Oregon State, with a, a one-game lead on the rest of the pack, is in a pretty good place as it comes home for rivalry play. So that actually leads us to our first question here. It comes from Twitter and Anigo Montoya. Uh, he asks, will they ever rename or rebrand the Civil War? Haven't heard anything in a while. It's a good question, and it's one that uh, I think, you know, with with every year and and season and, and whatnot that goes by, um, people just start to wonder more and more, is this rivalry series ever going to get a new name? Uh, nothing is planned as of now that I'm aware of. I know that both athletic departments have tossed around some ideas, um, but they have, for the most part, kind of accepted that fans aren't really going to embrace any change. Uh, no matter how good the name is, you know, that they that they decide to change it to, um, the athletic directors, and I, I believe Scott Barnes at Oregon State went on record saying, you know, we, we know that the fans are just going to want to call it the Civil War. Um, the people are resistant to change, and, and that's not always, you know, necessarily a good or bad thing, but that's just kind of where we're at right now. So uh, Civil War is, of course, a thing of the past. It's not going to come back. Um, I, I know that a lot of fans still refer to it as a Civil War. Um, you know, off the record, Angie and I, you know, we we still slip up and say Civil War too. Um, but that's that's where we're at. It's it's the rivalry series as of now, and and probably for the foreseeable future. Um, I have heard some good suggestions from fans. You know, there's all sorts of stuff that we've seen at, at Beaver Blitz and on Twitter and whatnot um, of some pretty good replacements. So uh, the one that the, the one that I like actually. With basketball no longer using the Far West Classic name for that tournament in Portland, I kind of like the Far West Classic for this rivalry series. Um, you know, Oregon State and Oregon have, have always been involved in that tournament. Uh, obviously, they're on the West Coast, uh, and it's it's kind of a unique name. So I wouldn't mind seeing that one. 
club lacrosse actually at, at both schools has kind of embraced the Oregon classic. Um, I know that some people out there have, have chosen to refer to that as well, just in their own circles. Um, I want to say that the Oregon classic might have been used before civil war at some point. I know that the state championship was used, um, but Oregon classic is, that's a possibility. I mean, you have teams at both schools using that, obviously not NCAA sanctioned, but, um, club lacrosse is, is using the Oregon classic. So there's something, if you want to try to run with something, that's, that's one that's already been used. Uh, our next question comes from Ron Riley on Twitter. Where is AJ Lattery? So Lattery, the, uh, the relief pitcher who had started a, a couple of midweek games for Oregon State before Jaron Hunter really jumped onto the scene here of late with two scoreless games at Oregon, um, he was actually under the weather along with Jacob Melton a couple of weeks back. I, I want to say that was the Long Beach State series. Uh, Melton obviously missed three games and then came back for the following week, but we still haven't seen Lattery. So I, I don't have any inside information on this. You know, I don't know if he's if he's still sick. I don't know if he's just been passed up by other guys in a bullpen that has been improving ever since he left. Um, quite frankly, you know, I, I don't even know if, if he's still on the team. I'm going to assume he is, but that's where we're at right now. I just... I don't have any information other than I know that he was sick, and for all we know, he could very well still be. But you have to like the way that the Oregon State bullpen has responded in his absence. I, I mentioned Hunter being a guy uh, who has come in on Tuesdays and, and really locked that role down, but at the back end of the bullpen, you've got Mitchell Verberg really turning things around after the work he put in with Rich Dorman, and then Ryan Brown emerging as what— could very well be one of the best closers in the country with the way he's played right uh, of, of late. So uh, bullpen really shaping up even even without Lattery. So if he's still sick, get well soon, AJ. But um, but know that you're coming back into a bullpen that is is going to push you, uh, and and hopefully you know when you're good to go, um, you know you, you can step right in and and play at the level that they've been playing. Ben Clayson asks when are tickets available for the first Pac-12 baseball tournament. Uh, obviously, that's coming up here in a couple weeks in Scottsdale. I'll be there covering the action for Beaver Blitz. Uh, I'm sure a handful of other Oregon State uh, media outlets will be there. Uh, it's going to be a fun event. You know, the first time the Pac-12 has has hosted a baseball tournament, uh, and it's it's a great place to do it. Scottsdale Stadium, a, a very nice spring training venue. Uh, the home of the San Francisco Giants. So to answer that question, tickets actually have been available since April 7th. Uh, you can go to pac12.com slash tickets to secure, to secure yours. I actually checked the other day to see uh, what the availability was like, and there's still quite a few out there. Um, quite affordable, too. You can buy all tournament passes or um, session passes, which will get you in for two games at a time, and then I believe the entire championship series. So uh, different options there, you know, if, if you've got a team or two that you want to follow, if you're, you know, listening, listening to the damn podcast from Arizona and you live down there and you, and you want to get in and just watch some baseball, um, there are multiple options out there. So that's pack12.com slash tickets. Those have been available for about a month now, but they are, um, still, still on the market. There's quite a few coming from that primary source. You don't have to pay the, uh, the ludicrous resale fees and, and prices that you might have to. Um, if you're trying to get down to Corvallis for a baseball game this weekend, I know that Saturday, I believe, is sold out, um, but I'm not entirely sure about the rest of the series. I, I would imagine Goss will be at or near full capacity all weekend for, for that big series. At Black Dog PDX asks for baseball. He actually has two questions here, but for baseball, one player used sparingly this season who may have an impact on regional or playoff ball. That answer probably would have been a little bit different a week or two ago, but I, I think there are two guys, and, and both of them had a big game yesterday in Eugene. Uh, the first one I mentioned it, it was Jaron Hunter, who, you know, I, I think as we get closer to, to postseason play, that fourth starter role becomes more and more important. You know, you lose a game in regionals, you lose a game in Omaha— and your pitching depth gets tested real quick. So to have a guy who can go out there and give you five or six scoreless innings, um, that, that's huge. And I actually asked, I asked Jaron himself and, and Mitch Canham after the game yesterday, you know, how confident, confident do you feel 
going into this time of year knowing that you have a fourth starter who can give you that kind of production. Uh, Jaron's really excited about you know where his role could take him in the postseason, uh, and, and Coach Canham is is really proud of the progress he's made and is excited to see what he can do um, in that situation where they're you know pitching a fourth guy and they're playing five games in six days or or whatever it is. Um, obviously, you don't want to get into that situation. You know, you'd you'd like to sweep the field, but um, we know that that's that's not always a reality. So Hunter is one guy that comes to mind. The other one is a freshman in Jabin Trotsky, who I, I think might be earning his spot in the everyday lineup right now at shortstop. Uh, th- this is someone who came to Oregon State as a really highly rated recruit. Um, he's, you know, he can do it on both sides. He's got a great defensive ability, but he's also getting it done at the plate right now. You know, he's, he's batting above 300. Um, and he made a couple of big defensive plays last night, um, in Eugene, especially two in the, in in the ninth inning there to, to help Ryan Brown get that save. But he also made a diving play at short, uh, with the bases loaded in the eighth to keep Oregon state's lead intact. So, uh, he's he's showing it all right now, and I, I think he's coming on at the right time. I, I'm curious to see uh, in the coming weeks. You know, does Kyle Dernetti continue to get looks? Um, do they shift things around? You know, Jake Ducart can play on the left side. Um, I, I mean, there there's all sorts of depth there. It's just a matter of who can put everything together. And and Trotsky right now is the only guy who can consistently play defense and also hit the ball. Um, we saw a little bit of that from Paul Meyer the fourth a couple of weeks ago, but um, you know offensively he started to tail off a little bit. So it was important for Trotsky to get a look there. He did, and um, he's made the most of that opportunity. So I'm excited to what to see what he can bring over the next few weeks here as we get closer to the postseason. Uh, and if you know if he keeps playing this way, that's a guy who's probably going to make a pretty big impact uh, in the regionals and and hopefully beyond. Black Dog PDX also asks a football question here, uh, so we're gonna we're gonna kind of put the wrap on baseball there for now. Uh, the biggest factors affecting the lack of splash portal transfers on on the football field. This is a good question that I've gotten a lot over the last few weeks. Is the May first deadline to enter the transfer portal passed, and you know we get towards this July first. Um, I believe this this second deadline is still intact, the July 1st deadline to transfer and still be eligible immediately at your new school. So we're kind of in that in-between period where you're not going to see anybody else enter the portal, um, but you're probably going to see quite a few guys commit as they, um, you know, they, they don't want to risk their eligibility in the fall. But at Oregon State, yeah, there's only been one portal guy that, that has come in on, on the football side of things, and that's Jameis Griffin from Georgia Tech, the running back, former four-star recruit. Um, I, I would consider that a splash portal transfer just in, you know, you're, you're bringing in a guy who was a pretty highly rated recruit and who played quite a bit at Georgia Tech. I, I don't know if the, the production was quite there. You know, I think he, he was averaging about four yards a carry and scored twice, but um, I, I would consider that a pretty solid portal landing uh, by Jonathan Smith and company. But outside of that, yeah, I mean, th- there's been nothing. So the the main thing that I look to is just the lack of scholarships that that Coach Smith has available right now. Um, by my count, I, I haven't updated the scholarship distribution chart at Beaver Blitz for a couple of weeks here, but um, by my estimation, Oregon State only has two scholarships available right now. And up until about a week or two ago, they were actually over the scholarship limit. Um, Arnez Madison transferring out. Junior Walling, Demir Collins, Zariah Beeson, and Champ Flemings, um, all of those guys have left recently and have have brought that scholarship count down um, to where, by my estimation, Oregon State is at 83 right now. But, I mean, up until a couple of weeks ago, Oregon State really couldn't afford to bring anybody in without knowing that they were going to have scholarships available. Uh, obviously, you know, you, you got to put yourself in the shoes of a, of a college athlete if you're in the transfer portal, you want to ensure that when you commit to a place, you're going to be able to play. Uh, and if Jonathan Smith's sitting in this kid's living room and said, hey, look, we're just assuming we're going to have a scholarship for you. Um, yeah, that's that's not really going to work in your recruiting process. So um, that would be that would be the thing that I would look to the most um, if, if you were concerned about the fact that Oregon State hasn't landed anybody of note in the portal recently. It's just 
quite frankly, they haven't been able to because they haven't had the scholarships. But um, transfer portal, you know, it's it's a two-way process. So while it hurts to see a, a guy who uh, came to Oregon State as a four-star commit in Demir Collins, he's the highest-rated recruit of the Jonathan Smith era, while it hurts to see him leave, you also have to recognize that out, that opens the door for uh, somebody at a, a position of greater need to come in and, and potentially make an impact right away. The other factor that uh, that I would point to would be the questionable ability to close on targets. It's it's just, I mean, we're at a point now where I think we do have to question Jonathan Smith, Brian Lindgren, um, to a lesser extent Trent Bray. I, I think defensively, um, you, you know, the guys that Trent Bray has recruited have more often than not committed, but uh, I, I look at the quarterback position in particular, man. I mean, losing JT Daniels to West Virginia when it looked like he was close to a lock to come to Oregon State, that might just be my hot take. JT Daniels is a lock to OSU, but, uh, you know, by all accounts, his, his visit went very well to OSU. He was here for two days. Uh, I saw him at practice, and he was, you know, he was he was locked in. He was, he was taking in the offense and, and learning as much as he could. I felt like Oregon State was in a great position to close on him and and bring him in. Very similar situation to Braden Dorman, the prep quarterback, uh, four-star recruit to Arizona now. Um, You know, the the Oregon State coaching staff just quite frankly isn't closing on these targets. And that's that's something that I'm looking to as um, a, a point of concern right now, especially um, when you're trying to fill positions of need via the transfer portal, you know, there's there's only so many defensive linemen out there. Obviously, Oregon State needs an impact transfer defensive lineman, particularly at, at, at the DT spot. If you can't close on one of the very few guys that are out there, you're never going to have a chance. Um, re- recruiting, it's, it's a tough business. Oregon State has some great recruiters on this staff. They've brought in, you know, some high-level transfers, uh, some four-star recruits in, in recent years, but you have to be able to close on the guys that you really need. And I just frankly don't know if if they have that ability right now. So something to look for in, in the coming months here is they start to round out the roster. Can they close on the guys that they really, really want? Our next question comes from Donska Beaver. Uh, I, I believe that's that's European. I, I want to say that's Eastern European, Northern European. The the Donska. Not entirely sure where that comes from, but I I do think that that is maybe um, Nordic. I don't know. If if you're listening, Donska Beaver, tweet at me and and let me know where you're from. But um, is hoops done in the transfer market? So an, another transfer portal question here. Um, this time you know we're we're switching over to basketball. Oregon State just landed Christian Wright from Georgia. Uh, he played a little bit of point guard there, and uh, and actually locked up a starting role towards the end of the year. He was he was started to really come on um, late in what I believe was his true freshman season. So a really promising guard coming from SEC territory that I'm pretty high on. I I, I think you know while the numbers might not have necessarily been there, um, I I want to say he averaged like five points, two rebounds, two assists somewhere in that range. Um, it's somebody who's still, you know, very early in their career and who could come in and, and make an impact on a team that's in dire need of a point guard after Deshaun Davis and, and Jared Lucas transferred out, Gianni Hunt as well. But no, to answer, to answer the question, no, I, I don't think Oregon State is done in the transfer market as, as far as basketball goes. Um, Wayne Tinkle actually went on the record after signing day and said that he is targeting two more guards. One of them was Christian Wright, came in and, and committed and I assume will sign here in the coming months. Uh, so Tinkle still has room for one more guard out there. And uh, the, the question is, you know, where's it going to come from? Is this going to be a junior college guy? Um, is this going to be a late high school signee? Is it going to be a transfer portal person? Um, we don't necessarily know who he's targeting right now, but we do know that he's looking for one more guard to uh, to round out this class. So it's going to be a young, inexperienced, and um, and new group this year on on the basketball court. Just you know, you'll you'll look at the newcomers that are coming in. A lot of guys from the high school ranks, a couple of guys from the transfer portal, and uh, and they outnumber the guys who are coming back from last year's team, which, as we all know, was a train wreck and is probably a good thing. But um, yeah, it 
it hurts to see a guy like Jared Lucas leave, but again, just like football, you know, all of these players that you get attached to, seeing their potential, um, they only have so much time to pan out. And and if they don't give you what you're looking for, um, it just opens up an opportunity to bring somebody in at, at a position of need or, or somebody who would be considered an upgrade. So um, yeah, keep an eye out for, for one more guard um, from Wayne Tinkle's recruiting efforts here over the next couple of months. At Desmerson asks, do we see New Jersey combos for the football team next year or even in New Jersey altogether? Um, so probably not just, you know, based off of how long Oregon State holds on to uniforms uh, before they make a switch. Jonathan Smith's approach to, to uniforms, you know, we're going to go with a solid color, uh, all black at home, all white on the road. I don't think you're going to see them mix it up too much this year. Last year, they actually did um, go with a multicolored combination for the first time since Jonathan Smith took over. Uh, they went with a black helmets, orange tops, and black pants against Idaho in a game that they won by quite a bit. So I don't know. I mean, you know, there's the there's the question, well, if, if we play well in, in one uniform combo, should we keep it rolling? If we play poorly in another, should we retire it? Uh, those homecoming uniforms with the uh, with the retro Benny that they wore against Cal and yeah I think that was Cal I want to say Cal and maybe Utah a couple of years ago uh, they got blown out in in those multiple times and I, I think that's part of the reason when they went throwback this past year you saw them go further um, or, or I guess closer to, to to recent times with the Angry Beaver logo and the uh, the Fiesta Bowl uniforms you know I, I think they they're kind of moving on from the old Benny, as far as uniforms go, uh, just, I, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's based on the way they played. Maybe it's just, you know, the university wanted to try something else out. But um, yeah, I, I think if, if you're going to see a throwback uniform this year, they'll probably just go with uh, the one that they used last year. I, I thought that was one of the best alternate uniforms Oregon State's ever gone with. Um, and, and honestly, there were a lot of fans out there who were saying, hey, can we just make this permanent? <laughs> like, can we just go back to the good old days of, of 2000 through, I don't know, 2004 or so? Um, put those big block letters on the front and back of our jerseys and get that angry beaver with the script under it on the, on the helmets and, and just rock with that for good. University's never going to spring for that. There's a lot of marketing that goes into to uh to uniform selections you know you've, you've got to represent your your athletic department brand and whatnot so i don't think you're going to see those show up more than once a year but i really do hope that they bring them back next year because obviously they played very well in them uh in in 2021 and I, I think that they're some of the best alternate uniforms we saw in college football last year to be to be quite honest so um yeah maybe Maybe one throwback game and and maybe one game of like a, a mix and match type approach to, you know, the pants and jerseys, but I don't think you're going to see any new uniforms altogether. Um, and I certainly don't think you're going to see any, um, you know, any wild combinations or anything. Well, they'll leave that to the, to the team 45 miles to the south. We've got a couple more Twitter questions here. The next one comes from at Exploding Walrus. Um, yeah, I, that's that's a new one. I haven't heard that one before. Um, a plus for creativity. I, I don't really want to think too hard about that. It makes me think of the um, the whale that they blew up on, on the Oregon coast way back when. Uh, but the question, regardless regardless of name, the new West Side renovation will drop the capacity a lot. This is in reference to Reeser Stadium, of course. Is there a possibility for small expansions on the West Side in the future or largely expanding the North End Zone? I've heard this question a couple of times too, and uh, the athletic department has actually addressed this. So um, with the construction that's going on at, at Research Stadium, capacity is going to be dropped to somewhere in the realm of about 37-ish thousand. Uh, you're going to see a couple of thousand seats removed as they um, kind of dedicate more space to premium seating, you know, those living room boxes and, and suites and whatnot. Um, with with that comes you know a, a reduction in capacity, which at Oregon State I don't think is necessarily the worst thing. Um, I, I know that there's another question coming up here, and so I'm gonna we'll get more into that um, with that question. But to to kind of answer this one more directly, the plan 
that Oregon State has in place for the west side does include for some expansion on the west side, but you're not going to see that come via seating. It's, it's going to be more of like a standing room type thing if they do decide to add on. Um, there will be room to add some more concourse areas. Um, think like think the outfield at, at Goss Stadium where you have that platform, that scaffolding that people can stand on. Um, obviously, it, it would be a little bit more permanent at, at Reeser, but that is kind of the plan. More uh, standing room availability will be made for you know those those big matchups when Washington or Oregon come to town, and uh, you know hopefully they start to sell out games again. It's it's been a while since we've seen Reeser at full capacity, but um, when you when when you bring things down to the realm of thirty five to forty thousand, and if the team starts playing a little bit better as it has in recent years, I think you could start to see some sellouts. Um, that's you know I, I don't think this expansion is going to happen anytime soon, um, but if if the capacity is reached multiple times, it's it's something that they'll consider. Um, but again, that's more of a standing room thing. So permanent seating is going to be stuck at uh, at about that thirty seven thousand ish mark uh, for the foreseeable future. We I don't know exactly what that number is going to be, um, but Scott Barnes has said it'll be in the upper thirty thousands. Another similar question comes from at they gone two three eight. What is the ticket office going to do about falling ticket sales for football? So obviously I kind of just touched on this, but a, a big goal of the renovation process of, of the West side is focused on what Scott Barnes called right sizing. So it's not downsizing, even though it is technically downsizing. Uh, they're referring to it as right sizing. So, you know, that's, that's looking at the demand for ticket sales and saying, all right, well, if, XYZ happens and demand increases, how much is it going to? And how many open seats can we afford to have on a given game day, given the current demand? Ultimately, they settled on a number close to, but not at 40,000. And so, you know, with that, like I said, you're going to see more premium seating, more loge boxes, more living room boxes, um, more club seating, that kind of thing. And obviously you can charge more money for those tickets. So they're going to recoup the lost revenue that they've seen in diminishing ticket sales with more expensive premium seating. Um, a little bit of an economics lesson. You know, you can sell fewer products at a higher price and, and make the same amount of money. So um, to, to put it quite simply, I think that's the goal there. Um, and I think that was kind of the thought press process behind um, lowering the capacity, but but also making sure that the fan experience is, is still there for those that do pay the money to come and, and watch Oregon State at Reeser. We have two more questions here from Twitter. The next one comes from Zach. Very broad question, but could you break it down by sport? How did Damn Proud Day do? What teams hit their donation targets? So Damn Proud Day, if, if you're not familiar with it, um, I, I'm sure if you're, you're active on Twitter, you saw all of the posts from all of the various... Uh, university departments, athletic teams, um, about a week ago, I, I believe it was last Wednesday. Uh, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but Damn Proud Day is essentially just uh, a very big and and widespread fundraising effort by the university as a whole. So, um, you know, you you ask for for donations from the general public. Um, you have some some higher level donors and, and boosters that'll match at, at certain, you know, benchmarks. Um, and actually, the university did very well. In total, it raised one and a half million dollars on nearly 6,500 gifts. So um, this this event has been around for a couple of years. It's very often quite successful. Um, and, and you see the athletic teams, but also various colleges and, and departments um, bring in various levels of, of money for their respective budgets. Um, so I'm going to run down just some of the sports here that, uh, that you know, of, of note where they ranked and how much money they brought in. Um, it, as far as donation targets go, these sports didn't necessarily have donation targets. They just had, like, um, goals and, like, I don't even know what, what word they used, but um, levels at which other donors would match 
you know, the amount that's been given, so to speak. Um, so first of all, the, the Division of Student Affairs topped the leaderboard university-wide at nearly $115,000. So um, that's that's a lot of money from, from one department because you look at uh, the, the number one athletic team, it was men's rowing, and it brought in 50000 So So not even half of, of what the Division of Student Affairs um, brought in, but but still quite a bit of money when you think about it. I mean, this is 24 hours, not even, um, of, of fundraising efforts, and, and men's rowing came in at number one on the athletic side with 50,000. Baseball checked in at number five at 36,000. Women's basketball just behind at number six with $34,000. Football came in at 13th with $18,000 raised. Men's basketball right near the bottom, as would be expected, I think, after a down year at number 17 with $12,000. So the next, the uh, the following sports here unlocked one matching goal. Um, again, a threshold. I, I can't remember exactly what they called it, but but these sports had one matching, um, had had one donor match what was donated. So softball, baseball, gymnastics, volleyball, men's basketball, and football all reached those goals. Two sports had two ma- two matches unlocked in wrestling and women's golf. And then a handful unlocked three matches. So women's basketball, women's soccer, men's golf, men's rowing, men's soccer, spirit, and women's rowing all had three donors match um, whatever was donated to that point or, you know, donated a X amount of money at, at this number of of donors. I'm not doing a great job of explaining this, but it's, it's, there's a lot of moving parts on damn proud day, but, um, overall, yeah, again, $1.5 million to the university in the span of a day on 6,500 donations. So a pretty successful donation and, uh, and fundraising effort by, by Oregon state last week. Our final t- question from the Twitter side of things comes from at go 85. This is a question more directed to, to me. It's not necessarily asking about Oregon State, but uh, GoBeews85 asks, what is the most challenging part about covering college sports? This is a really fun question to answer because covering college sports, man, like I I do not take this stuff for granted. Like it is, it's a blast. I realize how lucky I am to be in this field. But, but to his point, the most challenging part, man, this part, you have to know what you're getting yourself into when you're working sports. Um, you have to kind of have this always-on mentality. Think about, like, you know, some of those phones that you just pick it up and your screen, you know, pops up. That's how your brain has to work. Um, you never know when news is going to break. For example, you could have somebody enter the transfer portal at 10 p.m. on a Monday, and then... You know, the next day something will happen during, you know, scheduled work hours, so to speak. Um, but then Jonathan Smith, a, a couple of years ago, you know, was he, he dismissed a player from the team um, for some comments that were made at like 11 p.m. So <laughs> you kind of have to be ready for anything at, at any given time. You never know what's going to hit and you never know when it's going to hit. Um, but But being there when the news does break... Uh, is obviously very important in in this industry. With that also come non-conventional hours. So I mentioned, you know, news can break at midnight of of all times. But more often than that, you know, a 7.30 p.m. kickoff for a football game means you're probably working until 2 or 3 in the morning. Uh, There were times during the COVID season when, you know, Oregon State was regularly having like 8 o'clock games. I would go to sleep at like 4 a.m. after those. Like <laughs> my, my sleep schedule the, the entire week after that would be messed up. And then they'd hit me with like an 11 a.m. you know kickoff or, um, or like a, a 1 p.m. kickoff that gets me to, to reser at like 1130. Um, and <laughs> it's, it's hard to get used to that after, you know, you've had all of these night games in a row. But uh, yeah, the non-conventional hours and then just kind of the, the unpredictable nature of what kind of news is going to break and when, um, those are definitely the, the two most challenging parts. But again, and like it's also really rewarding because, you know, some of these games um, I, I wouldn't necessarily go to if it wasn't for work. You know, not many people 
showed up to a men's basketball game, a, a makeup game against Washington State at Monday, or on, on a Monday at like 8 o'clock. Um, I, I think the, the three or four media members that were there just about doubled the amount of people who are actually watching the game from the stands. So um, it, it forces you to get out of the house every now and then and, and you know maybe gets you to a game that you wouldn't have gone to um, if you weren't on the clock. But yeah, it's, it's not for everyone. It's, it's not as glamorous as it may seem. Um, but for every two, three, four o'clock in the morning bedtime um, comes a really exciting game or a playoff appearance or, um, you know, a, let's say a March Madness run that takes you to Indianapolis. So um, there, are, there are perks and there are drawbacks to every job. I think when you're working in sports, they're they're just a little bit more dramatic. So that's a wrap for the Twitter questions. We're going to hit this quick break, and then when we come back, we will take a bunch of questions from the Lodge at beaverblitz.com. You're listening to The Damn Podcast, powered by beaverblitz.com, a 24-7 sports affiliate. Beaverblitz.com is proud to be the leader in Oregon State football and men's basketball recruiting coverage. With access to the most talented and well-connected recruiting analysts in the nation, we're your source for all the latest scholarship offer, official visit, and transfer portal news. Year-round coverage of Oregon State men's basketball, football, baseball, and everything else within the athletic department makes BeaverBlitz.com the all-inclusive destination for in-depth analysis of all things Beaver sports. Join us today with a monthly or annual subscription to gain full access to our VIP articles, team of experts, and message board. Membership also grants the ability to chat with fellow Beaver fans and gain behind-the-scenes intel in the Lodge. You'll get all this and more, including access to all of the team sites across the 24-7 Sports Network with your subscription, so join today to keep up on your favorite teams and your rivals too. Now, back to the show. Alright, this mailbag episode continues as we switch our focus to the Lodge at BeaverBlitz.com. MCM Beaver 85 asks, has there been an official announcement for the hire on the new assistant men's basketball coach? Um, this question actually came in and, and I prepared this answer before the announcement actually did come in. So, so yes, um, Oregon State has officially announced Tim Shelton uh, as the final assistant coach on the men's basketball staff. Wayne Tinkle, of course, um, made made the tough decision, but I, I think the right one and then the necessary one to fire uh, Stephen Thompson and Kerry Rupp a couple of months ago after the men's basketball season ended. Um, Eric Reveno was the first hire that, that that filled one of those two spots, and then Tim Shelton, um, as has officially finally been announced by Oregon State, uh, rounds out that staff. So a little bit of background here on on Tim Shelton. He's the son of, of Oregon State legend Lonnie Shelton, who played under Ralph Miller um, a, a couple of decades ago. Most recently, Tim Shelton was on the staff at Fresno State as an assistant coach and recruiting coordinator. Uh, he was on staff at San Diego State before that and actually played with the Aztecs, um, I, I want to say off the top of my head, about 15 years ago or so. So still a, a young and up-and-coming coach who has established himself as a recruiter. Obviously, you don't get a recruiting coordinator job by accident, um, and that's that's big for Oregon State to to land one of what I think have been two really, really solid assistants um, that are coming in here. Eric Reveno has some head coaching experience, obviously a lot of West Coast ties, and then Tim Shelton, um, of course, has ties to the program via his dad and then has been on the West Coast ever since as well. So um, two guys that are well-connected out here two guys that are are very well respected in coaching circles and um, honestly everything that I've heard about these two guys in, in Shelton and Reveno has been very positive so uh, you hope that that they play very big roles in you know game planning recruiting you name it um, and and that Wayne Tinkle kind of loosens the reins a little bit and uh, and and really lets these guys shine because I think the assistant staff that Tinkle has built around him, uh, you add Marlon Stewart into the mix as as another really young guy who's um, known for his recruiting. I, I think these guys have sky high potential in in their in their coaching careers, and um, I, th I, th I think they bring a lot to the table. I, I think Oregon State is actually in a pretty good spot to bounce back on the men's basketball side 
Um, if these coaching hires pan out, which I'm sure they will, and if uh, if the players you know band together, unlike they did last year, and if they play at a level that um, I think Wayne Tinkle expects from them, and, and Oregon State fans certainly hope. So um, I, I know the uh, I know the vibe around the men's basketball program hasn't been great the last year or so. Um, well, I guess. Uh, a year ago, we were still riding high after that Elite Eight run. So it's it's really been over the last six months that, that things have fallen off. But um, yeah, I, I think the pieces are there to, to start to rebuild this. I don't know how long it's going to take. I, I frankly don't think that there's a whole lot of time to waste, especially if you're Wayne Tinkle. Um, so hopefully these moves pan out right away and, and you see the win t- total start to creep back up. StentGuy24 asks, should we expect to see Georgia Tech running back transfer Jameis Griffin get any carries next year? I talked about Griffin uh, in response to a Twitter question a few moments ago, but um, yeah, as, as I mentioned, so I've got his stat line finally pulled up here. He actually got 91 carries, took those for 377 yards and two touchdowns, and then also caught six passes for 72 yards uh, over three seasons at Georgia Tech. So a guy who has plenty of playing experience in a solid Power 5 conference. You know, I, I think the ACC and Pac-12 are, are fighting for that fourth spot among Power 5 conferences. But, um, you know, that's it's still a Power 5 conference, and it's, you know, a, a position that requires you to have a lot of skill at running back, and it's somebody who um, has produced throughout his career. So when when somebody like that transfers into a program, you immediately look for them to be a an impact guy. You know, if, if you have a good thing going at your previous school, you don't just transfer just to transfer. Um, you want to go to a place that is going to use you. Somebody, um, somebody like Jameis Griffin is going to go to a school that might not full on, you know, promise them a job, but would probably hint towards, hey, you know, you're probably going to have a role with us to some extent. That being said, Oregon State's running back room is obviously a very talented. It's very full. Um, even with the loss of Demir Collins to the transfer portal, you know, Damian Martinez is somebody that we've hyped up um, as as uh, an impact true freshman. And then Deshaun Fenwick and Trey Lowe come back too as as two bona fide producers. So it, there's, there's a lot of competition there. I, I do think Griffin will see the field. I just don't know how many carries he's going to get. Um, so yes, I, I would say I do think he's going to get some carries, but he's definitely going to have to fight pretty hard for them. Matt Chiafoni, of course, has a D-line question for us. Um, his hallmark is is to ask about you know the five or six defensive linemen that are coming to Oregon State via the transfer portal. Um, he asks this time, what do you think about the status of the D-line for next year? Is there enough difference makers and depth to create chaos similar to how Utah State blew up much of what we did. Short answer to that one is no. Um, no, I, 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 do, I do not think that there are enough difference makers and, and depth to create chaos. Certainly not to the extent that Utah State did in the LA Bowl. I mean, um, you, you had some All-Mountain West contributors on that front seven, and they, they made life on the Oregon State offensive line and in the backfield very difficult. Um, Oregon State just simply doesn't have that kind of talent. The long answer, though, I think that Trent Bray's scheme as a, a first-year defensive coordinator can make up for that lack of difference makers in depth. I think what you're going to see is a lot of help coming from the linebackers. So, you know, again, to to the point of the question, the defensive line's not in great shape. Obviously, Oregon State's linebacking core has been one of the strengths of this team for the last couple of years, and I think Trent Bray realizes that as a linebacker's coach himself, um, and he's going to put those guys in position to make a lot of plays and help out um, up front. A a lot of blitz packages, a lot of aggressive run stopping, most of that's going to come from the linebackers, but obviously, you know, give some credit to some of those D linemen who have stuck around for the last couple of years and who have developed in their own right. Simon Sandberg, Tavis Shippen, James Rawls, um, hopefully Thomas Seo at defensive tackle if he gets healthy in time for fall camp. And then uh, similarly, you know, Isaac Hodgins, who has been a pretty, a pretty reliable playmaker on the D line. Um, unfortunately, he's been just about the only one of those. 
but uh, coming off of a foot injury that's that's held him out for quite a while now, we're coming up on almost a year of that. Um, he is optimistic that he'll be back in, in time for the fall, but if he's not, your depth and your talent takes a pretty big hit once again. Matt Chiafone also asks, what happens first? Oregon State gets a portal defensive, defensive tackle, a collective for Oregon State NIL is finally announced, or the men's basketball team wins a game. So this is a good question because it, it covers a lot of bases, and we haven't talked about NIL on uh, on this week's episode and until now. I'm going to go ahead and say that the NIL collective will be announced first. Um, there has been there has been a lot of hand-wringing, I think, from Oregon State fans, especially ones in the know of you know where NIL is heading and, and those who pay attention to these things a lot closer. Um, they they recognize that Oregon State is really falling behind in the NI, in the NIL space, um, and you know I, I think Oregon State's trying to to play things very much by the book, which obviously you should. Um, but people have been cheating and, and paying players in college football forever, and and so now that they just have um, you know a legal means of doing so they're able to get NIL collectives up and running pretty quickly because the boosters have been giving money to players and, and coaches for years. But um, yeah, I, I think we're going to see that collective be announced first. I, I do know that there are two in the works. More of a One of them is more of a fan-based approach, and then the other is from high-level boosters themselves. So um, yeah, I, I would imagine one of those is going to be announced before too long. I know that one of them is in... Um, you know some of the uh, the registration and, and legalization phase, so to speak. You know, going through the process of registering as a nonprofit. So things are in the works. It's just unfortunate that I, I think Oregon State is being lapped by a lot of other programs, and um, this is the kind of thing that could put the nail in the proverbial coffin for a school like Oregon State that already lacks in in the funding department. But again, to, to answer the question. Men's basketball is at least not winning a game until November. Oregon State, via the transfer portal, those defensive linemen are really tough to get. Um, So I I think we'll see an NIL collective be announced within the next couple of months. Two more questions here from, from the Lodge before we wrap things up. C. Beaver asks, how about all the super top high secret, uh, top secret, high profile recruits in the portal that Beaver Nation will be ecstatic about that we are all waiting patiently to materialize. What happened? Still reason for hope or should we look for next year? So again, I touched on this earlier. The staff is just severely limited as, as far as what they're able to do with the transfer portal right now, just because they don't have many scholarships available. Um, but again, by my estimation, they have two, maybe three available at at, at this point. Um, and you're going to start to see some things kind of get into motion over the next two months as, as guys try to find a place to land by June or sorry, July 1st. Um, especially with the, the academic year at Oregon state wrapping up in June. I think that, uh, that late June, um, Mark is, it's a, a pretty solid, um, it's a pretty solid timeline to look at as, as far as, you know, somebody coming in, committing, and signing. Um, I would say, you know, you hope for two guys to come in by fall camp. I, I, again, I think things will pick up over the next couple of weeks, but um, you would hope to see your scholarship limit reach 85, no more, no less, by the beginning of fall camp. And and I expect that they will. Um, with only two scholarships to give, where do you see them being used this is a question from JRU, and it's it's the final question that we're going to get to here on this mailbag episode, and it, it ties right in with, with Sea Beaver's question. So with those two scholarships, where do they go? The first that I think is it's a high priority for Oregon State right now, Jonathan Smith mentioned after the spring game that offensive line depth is it's kind of a big point of concern right now. Um, a lot of injuries in spring camp kind of limited what Oregon State was able to do outside of its first team unit. Um, and I, I think if they can bring in somebody experienced, you know, maybe from the F, of the FCS ranks, maybe um, as a grad transfer, somebody who can come in for a year or two um, and just, you know, give a, a veteran presence off the bench, somebody who you can 
you can turn to if, if somebody goes down with an injury. Um, that would be the first place that I w- would look for them to go. Um, but then obviously I, you would hope that the other is used on a defensive lineman. Um, I, I know that there's, man, this, this news broke yesterday. I, I, this should be on the top of my head, but I believe Oregon State offered and is going to host a defensive line transfer or no, sorry, junior college target. Um, I know that they have hit, they've at least offered him. Um, I, I'm again, I, I should confirm this visit nonsense before I put it on the airwaves, but, um, yeah, they, they do have their, their, um, their eyes on a, a defensive lineman. But I, I do think, you know, just based off of what Jonathan Smith has told us, um, offensive line is another area that they're going to want to target. That is a wrap on all of the questions. Um, I, I know we had a few more come in late on, on Twitter and at Beaver Blitz, um, but I wanted to limit this to somewhere in the realm of 45 minutes to an hour. I feel like we've hit a pretty good stopping point, covered all things baseball, men's basketball, football, and got a little bit of NIL and, and transfer portal talk in there as well. Um, definitely want to leave some questions out there as well for, for next week and in the future when Angie comes back and you know we can dive into some, some, uh, some more conversation. I know she'll have some good perspective on NIL, um, and, and she pays more attention to the, the recruiting side of things, so she'll be more up-to-date on who Oregon State is targeting and whatnot. Um, she will be back next week. Again, we're hoping to have kind of a, a normal episode next Wednesday. We actually do have a guest lined up as well for the very near future uh, on the damn podcast. Not going to give out the name quite yet, but trust me, especially if you like baseball, you are not going to want to miss this guest um, I'm expecting a great conversation, um, some hard-hitting questions about uh, about where Oregon State baseball is at right now and, and kind of the approach they take to things. So, um, yeah, very, very excited about this guest that we're going to bring in again, hopefully next week. Um, do need to confirm with Angie that she's going to be good to go on Wednesday and then lock in the guest. But, um, yeah, we'll be back to normal, hopefully in, in a couple of days when Angie gets back to the States. Uh, But in the meantime, at at beaverblitz.com, lots of baseball coverage coming up. Oregon State hosting a crucial Pac-12 series against rival Oregon this week at Goss Stadium. I'll be there for Beaver Blitz. I hope to see many of you there as well. Um, Let's let's pack Goss for what is hopefully another successful three-game set against Oregon. But until then, you can follow me on Twitter, at Carter Baines. You can follow at Beaver Blitz on Twitter as well. And be sure to head over to beaverblitz.com for all the latest on Oregon State sports. That's all we've got today on this mailbag episode of the damn podcast. And we will see you again next week.